It's time for Strong Conversation, hot takes from a cultural firebrand. I am Dr. Carolyn Strong, and let's get ready to talk all things equity, some things education. So let's get it. All the technical difficulties in the world, but it's okay. I'm going to say good morning. See, it's a day. Hello, everybody. And thank you for joining us for this very candid joint conversation between myself, Strong Conversations, Dr. Carolyn Strong, and Black Girl Math with Beta Gray. So we're going to keep it simple because it is the middle of the week and folks got stuff to do. So um, I'm just going to jump right in and talk about the tweet that I sent out or tweeted that kind of started this dialogue and made us say, all right, we need to open this conversation up to the broader folks. So that tweet was, not that. Um, <laughs> teachers are walking off the job left and right. COVID mitigation is virtually non-existent and most folks still aren't, ans aren't asking the right questions. And I remember having a conversation with you and you just kind of being like, so what should folks be asking? Like, what are yeah, those and, someone, and and I believe someone else on Facebook posted on Saturday. Like we've been talking about it all last week. Mm -hmm. We we text about it. We were on Facebook together about it. And so yeah, I mean, it's just I'm glad we're able to have this conversation out loud. <laughs> and it's it's one of those things. It's it's really an interesting connection or paradigm or mixture or whatever you want to call it because I feel like it's something that has been talked about to death while at the same time, I feel like nothing's been said. So. <laughs> yeah. And, and I feel what's great is that you went to the next, to the next thing or the next step or the next level, which is what questions should we be asking? What are we not, what's not working? Because it's just, you know, I'm hearing admins, parents, and, and of course teachers feel like uh, admins and teachers feel like they're under attack. And so how do we get here? And I mean, we know how we got here, but more so of like, what questions do we need to ask so that we can not, you know, teachers not feeling like they want to quit every day, every other day, for example. I mean, yeah. And I did come up with just for me. And again, people can jump in, add as they feel those questions come about. But for me, there were like four pertinent questions that I felt weren't being asked. And the, the first one for me was, why is learning loss still the main concern? Mm. Um, and again, in, in full transparency, I am not in the classroom. So my focus is always going to be the social emotional component as a dean. That's always going to kind of be where I live. But at the same time, I did... I did a strong conversations maybe a month ago um, where I was talking to psychologist, Dr. Tiff. And one of the things 
that she was talking about was just the acknowledgement of the fact that everything that's going on has been stressful for everyone. Um, we've talked about we've talked about the stress that it's caused the students. We are talking about the stress it's putting on families. We're really just now starting to talk about the stress that it's causing the educators. But at the end of the day, everything still comes back to learning loss. So I guess my question, well, not I guess, my question is, why, when we see that there's such a greater need in a different space, why is learning loss still here when we, we've learned, or at least we should have learned, um, as educators by now, that you can't teach a hungry man? Mm. Yeah, and I think one of the things of why learning loss is still, you know, like, is the, at the forefront is it's almost the most tangible in some ways. Or it's the one that we always went to and even pre-COVID around, there were even concerns about testing and how often we were testing. But learning losses, we come to like already, what can my what can my child do? Or what can my, as a classroom teacher, what can my student do right now that they couldn't do? And also that just the, in terms of loss, there are so, I mean, students haven't been in school, in physical school in some, in some places for a year and a half. I mean, there were some schools who, who have been able to manage and go back in person. But I think learning loss is the most tangible thing that people, it's almost easier to, to talk about versus, like you said, suicide rates are going up. The social emo emotional uh, toll that it's taken on our children, teachers, admins. I'm also not in the classroom I support um, schools at a site-based level. And so just, and I just moved over from supporting teachers as a coach. And so I'm outside the classroom, but I'm hearing it from everyone. And see, like, I get it on, mm. on a logical level, but I guess for me, the way I'm looking at things, I'm like, do you know what type of long jump you had to do to get to learning loss? You like, I know we're saying it's tangible, but the job loss that families are experiencing is tangible. The housing loss that people are experiencing is tangible. The, the, the death that people are experiencing due to this virus is tangible. And we're just kind of walking around like this, looking for learning loss. And nobody has said, well, maybe there's all this learning loss because of all these other things we're just going all right we can't we can't put the kids on remote learning again because oh my god they got so far behind last time yep it was it was learning on a computer that did that not everything else that mm. <laughs> led up to having to go remote in the first place it was the fact that they were on the computer yeah not and what i'm hearing from my parent friends is that being remote and being online all the time was just demoralizing and just not just wasn't a good fit for many, many students. And for many students, they might not even have gotten online if they if they were remote learning. So, you know, because parents were working, because they might not have had someone who could sit next to them. And, and yeah, you're right. Financial, uh, social, yeah, things are, I mean, all those numbers you can touch, but those are also the things that a lot of us aren't talking about. I mean, we're talking about it, but in terms of just talking about it in a sense of like, okay, what are we going to do about it? How are we going to support families who lost homes, who have lost jobs, who have, and, and the impact of all of that on their children? And now we're, you know, almost in some ways they're thinking that 
the answer was let's put them back in school in person and that will solve all the problems. And the thing is, it could have solved a lot of them. It could have because I, I understand that there are a lot of children that, that don't learn well in this virtual space. I completely empathize with that. Um, as somebody with ADHD, I get it. Like it's real, you know better than it's real easy for me to just, <laughs> just go left along. real quick. Like, all right, you switching topics? Okay, great. Let's get exactly. <laughs> you just gotta follow the squirrel down the rabbit hole. I get it. But at the same time, if we're going to do this and we want children back in school, and and collectively as an education community, we agree that in-person learning works better for most. Now, some of my parent friends have said, you know, my children thrived on mine. And and there are going, of course, there are going to be some that do. And that's fine. But for the most part, the majority of students are learning better in school. So then that brings me to my next question. Um, what have we done to keep people safe? Mm. And... And I think that that's been kind of the thing when we have people saying, well, people just don't want, people just don't want to be in school. No, I have no problem with being in school, but can you tell me what you're going to do to ensure that when I send my child back into your building, I'm not on pins and needles every day, hoping that they haven't been exposed or if there is an issue of exposure, I can trust your mitigation protocols to make the proper um, calls or texts or however this information is being delivered. What does that look like? And a lot of places aren't really telling us. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing too, is that parents aren't feeling that they're getting much communication. Uh, for example, my one of my nephews was exposed right before winter break. And so, you know, and my brother shared hey, it's they got a letter or something, form of communication, your, your, you know, your son may have been exposed and then they had to, and, and at that point in time, it was really hard to find at-home tests to even, you know, like just to get a head start on, could, you know, could he have, you know, is he positive with COVID? Um, and then also then trying to get uh, an appointment because testing, you know, testing sites were even more crowded as we were heading into the holidays yeah. and even after. I mean, during my the last time I got tested last, was it two weeks ago? It was an hour. It took an hour to wait at one of the county sites. Mm -hmm. It definitely, cause you know, I go weekly. So yeah. <laughs> I've been able to see the shift from me just kind of being able to drive up and them knowing my name, like, hey girl, <laughs> it must be Wednesday, um, to having to wait. Like, I think when I went, the right before Christmas, it took an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And then when I went before New Year's, it wasn't quite as long, but mm -hmm. it was definitely longer than I'm used to waiting as somebody that goes every week. So, mm -hmm. but that's still offsite testing. That's still my choice testing. So I guess I'm still going back to the question of as entities and as institutions, what has been put in place to keep people safe. And for those of you that are watching or joining us, if you are a parent or an educator, what have your respective school communities done to kind of ensure safety? Um, what, what's happening? Because I know that across Illinois, there have been discrepancies in what, 
mm-hmm. it's running the gambit. You have you have some schools that are like, all right, it's Monday, come get you, look, come get your swab, and then you have some systems that are like, well, we can't make you. So it, we're, we strongly encourage that you do this. I know um, in California they mandated uh, was it LA Unified School District. They mandated testing for everybody to return, and they caught sixty-two thousand cases of COVID. Yeah, which was about ten percent of the yeah. of the population already that they had tested and was and was positive. Yeah, so sixty-two thousand. I think it yeah. was people in the school community. It wasn't all students, right? It no, was, I, it, it was, was a mix um, of students and teachers. From, re- yeah, from what I read, sixty-two thousand members of their what six hundred thousand. I mean, the district is huge. The the district is. Very yeah, large, one and a so, half million. Yeah, students. so just 60, by just students by itself, yeah, sixty-two thousand is a lot, <laughs> and so um, I think that just them saying, "Hey, you can't come back until we have some sort of baseline," because there are schools here that went back and were on quarantine literally halfway through the day. Some of those tests started coming back, and now you've got a situation where we've been in school for four hours and now people got a quarantine for five days. Yeah. Or that they, you know, I had teacher friends who had half of their students the first day back or, or sometimes even less because either they had tested positive or had to quarantine um, because of exposure or, uh, oh man, I just lost it. That's all right. Yeah, like just went out of that. <laughs> That's okay. It, it happens, but we can. But I have these two questions on here because they're not the same thing. Right. I know they may seem like it is like, well, what have you done to make people feel safe? Um, because sometimes, you know, people have a bunch of jokes about me because I get so te- I test so often, and so it's it's come to the point where it's like, you know, you don't have to test every week. I'm like, okay, at this point for me, it's emotional support testing because <laughs> it's the one thing that is in my control and I can do. And if something does happen, God forbid, <laughs> if something does happen, then I'm on top You're of it. You're on wood over there? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, if something does happen, then I know last Wednesday I was negative. So there's this, there's this small window that, that I have to do my contact tracing and, and, and those types of things. So I guess the next question, the next question that we should have been asking is what have people done to make people feel safe? And I think that standing before those in your employee and declaring that something is safe because you said so <laughs> is not exactly doesn't doesn't you know give everyone the warm and fuzzies in that way or make people believe oh just because you said it that is true and also for like you said for your own well-being and and mental health you test weekly whereas some it seems may have just started testing more you know again we want to try and see if we can get together for the holidays because again this pandemic has been taxing and has also made um had families who just had to you know pod or gather differently and move differently within their own communities and again across their own families and so just even looking at already maybe they got tested and also are also looking at just what are some 
other things that have been put into place to even make people feel safe. Already, I test, but then also, how am I feeling? How are we checking in with people in how they're feeling and how they're just doing generally? Because what if they didn't get a chance to get together with friends and or family or loved ones over the holidays? They spent two weeks quarantine. You know, some of them spent two weeks quarantine. Yeah. It, it's a hard question, but they are definitely different questions. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you done to actually make sure things are safe? Um, what have you done to make people feel safe? Like, I know some of the arguments in schools are, you know, soap dispensers, you know, some places soap dispensers mm-hmm. are still just as empty as they were pre-COVID. So that's a little change that you can make to make people feel safe. Because again, in the beginning, it was, well, hand washing is going to save us. Well, if hand washing is going to save us and you don't even supply us with soap, what are you telling yeah. me? What message are you sending to me? I mean, one of the things that I saw, and again, this is right before the right before the surge or as the surge was, was starting to get to rev up, um, was that when I went into schools, one, I was most of the times I was stopped at the door. One, because I'm not, say, for example, school personnel. So someone would meet me at the door or I, you know, or I stopped at the, uh, you know, at the before I even got to the front desk. And what was great also was that they had hand sanitizer dispensers, one right at the door, a few feet in and across and around the school if I, you know, if I went in for a meeting. So that that helped me think about, all righty, I know I am cleansing my hands. And also, you know, I was also wearing a mask. Yeah. And that they and that they're trying to keep their school community as closed as possible. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. I, was I, know. <laughs> I was like, I am OK. I just want to <laughs> drop this off for you right. and I will head on down the street. <laughs> Right. And they wanted to keep the school community as close Mm -hmm. as possible. And I know Mm -hmm. at my daughter's school, they were doing the same thing. She wanted me to come in for a story time and read my book to her class. And the school was like, that's awesome. No, (laughs) you can't come past the door. Sorry. (laughs) Like you want to gather the children around at the door and I'll read through the door. But they and that's something that at least for the semester, they haven't they haven't wavering on which I commend them and they also mm-hmm. um have not had very many cases go through the building um because they are pretty decent with their with their COVID protocols which makes people feel safe mm-hmm. absolutely and I guess that brings us to this last question <laughs> um and this is probably a separate conversation but when are we going to acknowledge that normal isn't something we really want to return to Mm. in terms of education where do we start on that list exactly that's why i said it's probably it 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 actually now i'm thinking about it yeah it is a separate conversation but just just a quick and dirty hit like we are we are now doing that thing that we love to do where something is gone and now we sanctify it Mm. that's that's what we people love to do you know how folks to use my mama's example, folks show up at funerals and they start talking about Fred like he was the greatest thing since sliced bread. And folks are sitting there like, but you hate it, Fred the most. I like, mean, whatever, you can't talk ill of the dead or something that has, you know, has gone on to, you know. Some people even refer to it as the good old days. And I'm just like, well, we. In education? Well, in some in some spaces, but again, 
we all know and we look at, you know, we all give the side eye because the, I mean, we had, we had problems in, in education before COVID and COVID just revealed different things. So, I mean, one of the starts is, I mean, and we've seen more and more of a focus on, say, for example, social emotional learning and really thinking about how do we support uh, children? How do we support even the adults with coping skills and mechanisms in terms of regulating behavior and also finding ways of just mitigating anxiety? One of the things that I learned during uh, during the pandemic and when I was quarantining or or when we were on shutdown was I need some more tools. Like my regular tools were not working to help me with my anxiety. I mean, I got coloring books, I, you know, just different things of like journaling more. And so what are some things that we're doing with students in the classes and also in and at home to support? Yeah. And I think that that was one of the big things for me. Um, I've sat in on some conversations and one of the conversations I sat in, we had to read an article and the article was like, um, the pandemic has made kids sad or something like that. It was like mm-hmm. the pandemic has increased depression in, in kids. And it's like, yeah, but you got to put a big asterisk by that because a lot of these kids were already having these feelings pre-pandemic. You just weren't trapped in the house with them long enough to actually have to pay enough attention to them to Mm. see what was happening. And those are two different things, because when school is in session, most kids are gone, what, eight to nine hours a day, especially Mm. the little ones when you have to work. And so you're dropping them off before work and not picking them up until after work. And you're really only seeing them to to unless they have a later bedtime, two hours a day. So. It's hard to know. It's easier to notice some stuff when you're sitting on top of somebody for several months than it is to notice it when you are literally bringing them in the house, shoving food in their face, running them through the bath like a car wash, and then dumping them in the bed. Right. So, um, and again, that's not to say that this isolation has not exacerbated people's yeah. um, ongoing mental health struggles because that's not true at all. But right. a lot of this stuff was already there. And it just it was just easier to ignore before. Mm, yeah. Or we were so busy that we, you know, if we didn't see it. Yeah. And and that's the one thing that this has done is kind of make people slow down and take Absolutely. stock of everything. Yeah. And what's what's really and truly important. I know one of the things about uh, I was reading the Forbes article that was released last week around just teacher, you know, what's what's happening with education. And one of the things that they suggested is how are we going to, like not trying to put the COVID learning loss just on the teachers and how yeah. we're really going to be thinking about, so one of the questions that popped up for me is what's going to be important to teach this year? What do you want to make sure that your students, you know, your students, your children walk out of this year with? Versus thinking like, you got to know this, you got to know your time tables, you got to know how to add and subtract yeah. fractions. And so really thinking about, so what, where did they start the year at? And also what, what is going to be important? Two or three things that we want to make sure they leave the year with. Yeah. And I think too, one of the things that we have to look at is, is the, the decision-making tiers because school districts or, or the state 
gave school districts the green light to forego testing during mm-hmm. during the pandemic and forego teacher evaluations. And a lot of folks did not take them mm-hmm. up on that because somehow, some way, they figured that high stakes testing and teacher evaluation was still important in the middle of a global pandemic. So a lot of powers that be have not shifted the focus on what's important either. So how can the shift in focus trickle down Mm -hmm. if, if your higher ups are saying, no, 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 we have to stay the course, even if that course is going into Lake Michigan. Right. And also, and I think it's been suggested across different spaces, actually coming together and having a, you know, versus first it being top down, like, let's just really have a conversation, come to the table. Like, what are we really experiencing? And see, I'll put it out there. Any district administrators want to come talk to me? I am open to dialogue and having conversations about what's important because we're not really getting it right right now, Mm. Uh which leads me to my next point which is that um, the National Association of Secondary School Principals just released a study and it was called, um, what was it called? Not like I didn't just read the doggone thing. What was it called? There it was. Um, The uh, NASSP survey signals a looming mass exodus of principals. Mm -hmm. Now, one of the things that, that we've been doing is that we've been talking a lot about teachers in all of this. And sometimes when we do that, we forget, you know, that there are school level administrators here, too, that don't really have as much control over their buildings as they would like. So it's that trickle down where they don't necessarily agree with it either. But, you know, got it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. So the key findings from that survey were that um, if we continue on this same course, there will be a mass exodus of principals from K-12 schools, which has already oh, started. Yeah. <laughs> um, I posted, I was on LinkedIn because again, it's no secret that I spend copious amounts of time on LinkedIn. Um, and across there are- social media pa- Across social mm-hmm. media platforms. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I think I think the trends that are changing on LinkedIn are very interesting, which is why I'm like, this is like Facebook with job applications. <laughs> but- um, but one of the things that I'm noticing on LinkedIn is that there are a lot of principal jobs open, like mm. in January. Um, a yeah. lot. And, and also, you don't see that on LinkedIn. You might see it on a school website, or you might see it elsewhere. But yeah, that that does that does say a lot about that. Well, um, even if even if you see it, you usually if there are job openings for principals usually in January, therefore a July start. Also because true. because somebody is leaving at the end of the year, somebody's retiring and they're trying to be do their due diligence about their mm-hmm. hiring process. And so they're posting in January to give them time. Mm-hmm. Though these mm-hmm. are like, uh, can you start in two weeks? Like these are current principal openings, which makes me think that a whole bunch of administrators have just chucked the field to deuces, which is unfortunate. Because it is, especially losing that type of experience and, again, just, you know, feeling that, like, hey, I got to get out and I got to get out now. That that also says a lot. Um, for and, me, in my yeah. spaces of um, Carolyn put out a put out a shout out to the admins, you know, again, if teachers want to talk through 
you know, what they're experiencing, uh, especially math and want to talk through, hey, what what can I do in math to really support my students? I'm here for you. I love a good roundtable. You know that. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I love a good roundtable. I love a good chat and chew. I'm, 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 I'm with it. I'm for it. Um, and the other thing that they were talking about is that a lot of these people are not leaving to go to other schools. Mm. They're leaving the field entirely. Yeah, they're not. I found a better school. They're like, I am going to be the executive director of blah, 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 because my leadership skills matter over they, there. Yeah. And that's that's the hard piece. Um, and the principal pipeline is directly affected by the teacher pipeline. Of mm-hmm. course it is. Because Absolutely. if you don't have teachers going through teacher ed programs or you don't have if you don't have teachers, teachers matriculate into admins. If you don't have teachers, how are they going to matriculate? And I mean, what was it back when I started about 20 years ago? I think new teachers on average stayed about five years and I, pre-pandemic goes three years. I think we, you and I were talking about that. It yeah, we were right now. Yeah. It's, mm. Yeah. So one of the questions that I thought of today as I was listening to another conversation um, with some school leaders is what can we do to support? So, you know, like what can you do in your role? Because uh, one of the conversations I was having with one of my best friends last week was, I mean, we are heavily relying on one teachers, but we're heavily relying on schools for a lot of, for a source of just a lot of things, um, social services, mm-hmm. education. And so what, what can we do as community members, as educators to build that support and kind of, you know, circle around uh, because, you know, we know they're tired. Yeah. Yeah. The third finding was, oh boy, tense political environment is accelerating some school leaders' decision to leave the profession. Um, We saw a lot of this when principals wanted to, in certain places that wanted to enforce mask mandates, but weren't allowed to. Mm. And states that were, and even, even at the superintendent level, you had superintendents in certain states that wanted to enforce mandates, and you had governors that were threatening to take their funding if they put a mask mandate in place for students. So you are trying to do what you feel as an educational leader to keep your your school community safe. And it's been politicized to the point that you can't do what you feel is best for your students. Mm-hmm. That's That's a hard pill when you've been trained to do what's best for your students. Above everything else. Yeah. I definitely was when I was a in when I was a school leader. Um, and last, traditional work-related conditions continue to impact principals' decisions to leave the role. So, I'm not sure exactly what that means. And yeah, I was going to ask, like, what, I was going to have to do a deep dive. Let me let me pull up the article because I like that one didn't make sense to me. Um, It says the top three factors most likely to cause principals to leave in the next three years are heavy workload, state accountability measures, and the amount of time and effort needed for compliance requirements. Um, Part of that sounds like 
you know, teacher shortage means you got to get in the classroom too. But yeah, I could just I, be a little touchy about that. Mm, got it. Yeah. And I've definitely been, you know, called up schools um, in lot, you know, last week, this week, and just the principal, you know, covering lunch duty, mm-hmm. they're in the classroom, they, uh, you know, so yeah, they, they are doing everything, you know, just whatever, whatever it takes, whatever they can do to, you know. Support. And that's great because you should lead from the front, but it's also hard and this is not necessarily what anybody signed up for. Admins, teachers, hell, lunch ladies. This is not <laughs> what you signed up for. No. So no one could have imagined, yeah, what what it would take to you know run a school and like you said, keep people safe. And uh, one of the things that I was even thinking about or talking about last week was that for me at work, and again, one one thing is that has been put in place. I can work from I can work from home. Second is that if I do go to an office, a work office, or if I do go to a work meeting, I know everyone is vaccinated. And so just like you said, going back to those things of what will keep people safe and what can we do to make people feel safe, you know, and so I know those are like guarantees in my workspace and it's just so much uncertainty. And yeah. Yeah uncertainty brings about anxiety and nobody performs well when they're anxious. Mm -hmm. And that's what a lot of this boils down to. Um, I know that this wasn't going to be a lengthy conversation and there will be more conversations moving forward. Um, Hopefully they won't all be about COVID, but. (laughs) These are days and times right now. So uh, if you're here, you know where to find me at Strong Conversations um, on Facebook and Dr. Carolyn Strong on Twitter. Where can we find you? Uh, for me, I just got a new Facebook page. I'm super excited about it. What? I'm entering the 21st century? Is that? Uh, anyway, um, doing big things at Black Girl Math. So um, I'm uh, Black Girl Math on Facebook. I am BLK Girl Math on Twitter. I think I'm even, I think I'm, I'm under my own name, LaBeta Gray or Beta Gray on LinkedIn. Just, you know, yeah, depending same. on what I, I, don't, I don't think I have any fancy goings on on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah. Um, and strong, well, conversa- I'm strong conversations on YouTube. Hmm? Oh, yeah, you are. You do have YouTube. I do have YouTube. I'm, I'm trying to diversify I mean, because I know everybody's not on social media. Bringing me along Well, you know, everybody's not on social media. But everybody got YouTube, especially teachers. Yeah, I got that's where all the Khan Academy stuff is. <laughs> all right, have a good one, y'all. Thanks, everyone. Bye. You've been listening to Strong Conversations, hot takes from a cultural firebrand. Make sure to like our Facebook page at Strong Conversations or follow us on Twitter at Dr. Carolyn Strong. Until next time, have a good one.